Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. I've done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with different types of healers who have created a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete that circle of artistic authenticity which we all strive for. The cats I interview have been making a living on the bandstand for the last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to understand. They've come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a great deal of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. In my view, labels and names nowadays have gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters in the business want to pigeonhole and brand music. The cats have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off for years. They played little parts and served the song as conduits for information from the heavens. For the most part, the cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way to become part of the musical conversation. Yeah. Thankfully, when the record business was actually an industry, these artists had an opportunity to gain name recognition through their work as accompanists and leaders by weaving in and out of different musical styles. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from these musicians, whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the chance to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than me, have experienced societal shifts, have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. As a rogue journalist, I'm searching for that fine line of, of connection from mind to body to soul. That's where the spirit emerges and what my whole show is about, how to create spiritual music. Ari Joshua, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, thanks for welcoming me, and I, and I, I do feel welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's an honor to have you, man. You know, I know you're not one of my elders, per se, but I just wonder what it has been like for you over the last handful of years to connect with guys who, if nothing else, were uh, part of the lineage and directly connected to the masters of a lot of the music we love and how um, that has sort of shaped your point of view. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's like, uh, I mean, for me to answer that, it's just like, it's just like turning the faucet on because I, I have so much, to say, you know, Go ahead. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've always had a, a connection to like, I guess, whatever you want to call it, the source, you know, um, it's something like I had from a young age. Uh, and I was really lucky. Um, and this is something, you know, maybe I'm not, you know, uh, as you said, like one of your, I'm not, I'm not older. I'm, I'm not young either. But um, I'm old enough to say that I I got the tail end of absorbing the art in a in a really uh, pure and analog um, way. Uh, uh. And what I mean by that is, you know, for starters, I mean it, it. There's so much to say, but I'll just say whatever comes out of my mouth. But for starters, you know, I, I had my 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 parents' record collection, and that was where I got my introduction to music. Um, and then I'd got a guitar and, you know, um, we didn't have like electronic tuners even back then. So you kind of tune your guitar <clears throat> to the record. 
And, you know, I didn't even know if the record was playing the right speed or not. <laughs> uh, I love it, man. I, I would it. actually like sometimes manipulate the speed of the record to match the instrument, you know. And I learned the music, a lot of the music, just right off the records. And, um, you know, this is, and, and then, you know, cassettes, like my cassette tape player was like the play and the pause buttons were like worn off of all of them, you know. Sure. From, from listening so much. And, um, I kind of got to jump that way, but also before I got into jazz, um, which fortunately happened to me at a really young age. Um, but I had a couple of years where, you know, it was during the, it was a big convergence of so many things. And I was able to see, you know, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Fish and the Grateful Dead all in a span of two years. So I got like something that, you know, uh, and not only that, but a lot of jazz legends as well. You know what I mean? Like I got to see Oscar Peterson and, you know, a lot of people that aren't aren't around anymore. Herb Ellis saw him doing like master classes, you know. So uh, basically what happened was I'd already kind of soaked myself in the Jimi Hendrix grunge kind of rock thing, you know. And um, in ninth grade, I was actually playing football uh, at roosevelt high school and it was like the summer before my, my first year of high school the the practices started early and the funny thing about it is the only reason i wanted to play football was because i saw that Jimi hendrix played football <laughs> i didn't even know that he played football that's fantastic but i mean like i had like i had like every picture i could get of them you know what i mean like, sure 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 yeah the internet back then so if you got a book and it had a couple pictures so i just was so you know enamored by his message that you know if he was going to play football his freshman year i was going to do it but the funny <laughs> thing is i'm walking through the hallways and i hear this beautiful jazz big band music and little did i know i walked in the room and their guitar player the guitar player is a senior they were preparing to go on a european tour and i was like so you mean this is a class <laughs> we play like 1930s jazz every day for an hour and then we get to go to europe <laughs> And I'm like, you know, all right. So, um, you know, the last couple of years I've had the pleasure of working with and playing with a lot of really great um, musicians. I, and I'd love to talk about that. But this started way back in ninth grade because um, as part of the Roosevelt Jazz Band playing Count Basie music, even my freshman year, Ray Brown's reel came in. And oh, I got dear. to play blues yeah. with Ray Brown. You know what I mean? Like I played, he, you know, he was like, you guys know blues, <laughs> you know? And then he's like talking about the music and, you know, the same year, like I said, we went, I saw Elvin Jones, like do a, do a talk about music, you know? So it's like this whole entire thing. Um, my, my story is so interesting, I think also, because I kind of also like for, for many, many reasons also kind of like hit out for a while, like a good decade uh and well, now you know, let me let me just uh, you know because i, I want to stop and go back because i really believe that um <clears throat> you know like i uh we live in such a uh interesting time um and there's all this amazing creative organic music that's happening beneath the surface that maybe at one time in our culture and our history would have been commodified or commercial not commercialized but you know people could have could write original music they there'd be artist development and then you know ultimately they are now all the people we know today like james taylor and joni mitchell 
and you know Bruce Springsteen. None of those cats had radio friendly hits right off the bat. And so, um, and now today, the cats that are being promoted at some kind of level, I want to say pop rock or that kind of stuff. I mean, some of them can't even play. Uh, they're all dialed up or they, uh, you know, go into the studio and there's all this pitch correction. There's a lot of lack of authenticity. So the only thing that I gravitate to now are bands and musicians, a lot of whom you've collaborated with, who are truly playing spiritual music. So I wanted you to talk about the first time, maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but the first time that you connected to Source. Oh, yeah. Um well, I mean, I I somehow like knew from a really young age that I that I had that um, access. I mean, we would like, I mean, I mean, to be honest, uh, I mean, I, I I have I was born in in South Africa, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, my wow. my family is different than a lot of American families. And, you know, when, when we moved here, we didn't really necessarily know what what the country was like, you know, um, and I was really, really young. But um, one thing that that we had was my my family's religion, which which I, I'm not necessarily tied to any particular, um, you know, religion uh, per se. But I do think there's just incredible wealth of knowledge and and. And particularly, actually, in the, the religion that we have, um, and my my grandfather was actually a rabbi, and um, and and apparently there's like a lineage of them that go back generations and generations and generations. It's a whole other story, but um, I remember being in like you know in class in, in in school, and my parents put me in a school you know that was a religious school for the very for the first couple of years when we got here, and I remember like connecting right there, you know, like just singing singing old ancient melodies you know um uh feeling like there was moments where everybody was together and there was like an intention and everybody was singing and just tapped into a frequency and if you really want to know what it felt like it's not any different than it is now it it, it feels like a like a wave goes through the room and anyone that's in the room that, that wants to feel the wave can feel it and i love it I freaking love it's it. uh it's it, the closest thing i can say is it's like a tingly feeling and you know anyone that's a great musician that i know that i talk to about it um is really familiar with what i'm saying but a lot of people <laughs> aren't... i love it i love it man. <laughs> but people that aren't musicians sometimes they look at me kind of funny when i try and explain so no but that's the magic i mean that's the point is that i it's so evident i mean as a non-musician i mean i I'm not a professional musician by any means. I play some hand drums, whatever. I, I felt that magic four-way coordination on the drum kit. So I can't imagine being on the bandstand with, you know, cats that you trust and being able to become like one living, breathing organism. And there's just like telepathy going on. That's magic. And so yeah. that's yeah, source, I mean, you know? The, the, the way I, I mean, not to get too deep too fast. No, it's, but... fine. it's fine, bro. <laughs> the way that I see it is um, all life is vibration. And um, they, they have like the science to kind of prove that. Like if there was no vibration, there'd be nothing. Everything's right. That's totally right. And the thing that makes, you know, this table I'm knocking on right now wood is because the particles actually are sort of vibrating at a certain frequency that are, you know, 
And if you take, you know, another way to break it down too is if you take a, a scale, when I play a really low note on the guitar, it's less, it's vibrating less times per second to make that note. And then every time you go up an octave, it doubles. So like an A on the guitar is an A because it vibrates at 440 times per second. And if I play the octave up, it's 880 times per second, et cetera, et cetera, until eventually you can't hear it, right? So high. But the same thing that makes those notes is what makes everything like it's the electromagnetic spectrum like um color like each color is a different is vibrating at a different frequency it's vibrating a much higher frequency than the note is like you can't hear the color but it's still the same principles and so i think there's a a level of vibration and frequency that's even so much more subtle and small than anything that we can perceive with our ears or, or our eyes or even measure on any actual chart any machines that we actually have available dude you are going you you're going to never ever land on me right now i love it dude this i mean is yeah, yeah no i no, dig no. it man i really from the musician's point i mean listen do you have uh like you know garcia was like this mickey hart a lot of cats had synesthesia does that happen to you where yeah. you start to taste colors or taste uh you know, whatever it is, like that combination of the senses start to meld together when things are really cooking. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like the reason why no matter what I do in life, um, as I zigzag around, there's always the, this is always the compass. You I know? love it. I, I can't really, I tried to avoid it, actually, but. You can't. Um, no, I mean, the music, the music, the, the music found you, and that is your muse, you know. Yeah, but you know, sometimes the frustrating thing, as you said in the beginning of or earlier before we got to this, what's frustrating is when you know that you have the ability to tap in, and you know that you have the ability to really like give a lot of people something that that everybody really wants, but yet the system doesn't feel as though it's really recognizing that or helping that. Absolutely, yes. And so you end up in a real it's a real paradox for an artist to find themselves in the, in this position, you know? Um, but you know, well, I, I think it's, it, it's completely valid. Um, I, I just did this interview. I want to get your feedback on this, but I just did this interview with, um, this really mercurial badass guitar player named Bill Washer. And most people would not know that name, but he wound up cosmically, um, connecting with Lenny white back in the early seventies when he was at Berkeley and he wound up playing with uh, Joe Henderson and then was on like this Curtis Fuller album called Crankin, which is like so badass. And on top of that, the rhythm section was Lenny White. And at the time, a bass player named Stan Clark, not Stanley, it was just Stan. Mm -hmm. And this is like a burning, burning record. So I was talking to him about, and he, you know, we'll get into this cat later, Michael Shreve, but. Um, oh, I played Wash with Michael. No, I know we're going to talk. We're going to spend a long time on that. But I but oh, cool. the, the point is that he relate relayed a similar story about Billy Cobham when he saw Cobham. And so Washer went to see it was right over in that early 70s period. It was before Mahavishnu had even made a record. And I think he saw them somewhere in New York, top of the gate, somewhere like that. And McLaughlin was just operating on this complete other frequency with you know he had Sri Chimnoy he was living at the ashram and he was burning his through it and Washer 
walked out of the club and he was supposed to go back to Berkeley. And that night he drove all the way to Cape Cod and sat on the beach and just played his guitar. He was, he was so, he was, he loved McLaughlin, even though they hadn't made a record, but it blew him away. And going to Shreve, when he saw Billy Cobham play with Ma Vishnu, I mean, the power and the muscularity and the, and the alacrity threw against people, threw people against the wall. And Michael said, okay, I'm not going to be that. And I'm okay with that. I want to be myself. And yeah. walk, and, and even though Washer went to the beach in Cape Cod and was hanging with the seagulls playing the guitar, he also eventually came around to just accepting that he was never going to be that, but he was okay with that. And I just wanted you to talk about, you know, granted you didn't have to grow up with, you know, Return to Forever blasting in your face or McLaughlin, but was there a period of time when you recognized, okay, I, you know, someone who just had huge facility or huge chops and you were like, dude, I'm like, that's amazing, but I'm going to be my own person. Was there kind of a demarcation point for you at some point in your career? Um, I mean, I could think of a few things that right away come to mind. Um, but I, just to backtrack, I yeah. did grow up with um, John McLaughlin blaring in my face because I had a, one of my best friends, Forrest McPeak, and then the drummer we played with, Ethan Lawton, had these extensive vinyl collections and um, Visions of the Emerald Beyond was like our soundtrack to like my, you know, to like... No, no I, I, I was talking more about like uh, being at the Fillmore West, just like... No, 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 I'm with yeah. you, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did, did, I did, yeah. Yeah, so I'll just do this. You know, when I was like... 17 to 20, 24, 25, um, I would practice like, like five hours would be like a short practice. Sure. Like I would practice a lot and I was very obsessive about trying to get the facility and, and, and have access to being able to play. And I had certain, you know, exercises that I did with a metronome and I even have like at one point, like, you know, journals where I'd like write down how fast I could play certain things and then keep track of it for months, you know, at certain points. Um, but mm -hmm. there's two mm -hmm. things to say. One is, yeah, I went to New York to study and I thought coming from my hometown that I was pretty good as a teenager. Uh, but then when I went to New York, I realized that there's, there's no, there's no top to that mountain. <laughs> and there were definitely some players, um, you know, I mean, look, I went to school with uh, Robert Glasper. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. uh, look at Hitler. He's doing now. But he was already incredible when we were 19. And, you know, him and a group of people that I got to, I was so lucky to play with and hang with um, were technically just on such a level. It was great to be pushed. Um, but um, I think there's two things to it. Okay, now I got a, a third thing. Yeah. One of our teachers was Kenny Warner. Sure. I have yet to talk and, to, I, he's a badass dude. Yeah. And so Kenny Warner was like doing a masterclass and he's talking about the music and, um, but he's kind of like, he, I remember he said something that really hit me. He was like, you know, some people, especially in school, they think they're like trying to play jazz and they're like copying these other, other people. And he, I remember him saying like, it's not about like the reason why you're learning this music is to learn the language. So you can discover your own, expression and your own art the purpose isn't to necessarily like you know copy everyone else you need to take 
you don't have to even play this style of music. You should play the kind of music that you feel like you, you want to play. Um, and, you know, I've always had um, such a wide range of stuff that I love. I mean, like I love, I loved Nirvana when I was growing up, you know, and I loved, you know, Hendrix and I loved, you know, I don't know, so much stuff, but um, so the next the next thing is, um, so you, you, you no, I want to, I want, you're, you're doing great. I want to break this down. So like basically one of the things, so there were, obviously there's no top to the mountain in New York. Um, yeah. you wound up playing with people that were better than you, which is obviously oh, yeah. the key. And then yeah. you had philo philosophic teachers like Kenny Werner, same thing with Washer. He, he had this great teacher, the late great Mick Goodrick. And they'd well, wind yeah. up they'd wind up talking about Gurdjieff in the fourth way and Osipensky most of the time. I mean, it yeah. wasn't even like <laughs> so it was like opening up your mind, but you're there was not like a situation. I guess maybe more to the point, this is a better question. What would not that I mean, I was born in 78. It sounds like we're probably similar ages. Oh yeah. I, you know, so so I just I want you to talk to younger cats who are growing up in a very visual time, a lot less yeah. auditory than our, our generation clearly i was a you know i listened to the tape decks too and you're you know the play button fell off and you know you were tuning records and tuning mm -hmm. your guitar so younger cats who are hung up on this idea that all they're seeing is riffology and and facility and chops yeah. and, and and yet that shit i just wind up staring at the wall what would be your advice to cats um to let go of trying to copy comp especially as it relates to facility and just sort of lean into your own, lean into who you are. How, 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 how what would your, be, would your advice be? Because there's just, cats are being pummeled with, we're saturated with yeah. visual material and most of it is completely mediocre. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, this is a tough one because like we just talked about earlier, that tingly feeling for me is a is a compass. Yes. And that will, that will direct me no matter what to what the whole point is. Um, and, but not everybody gets that. And, 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 it, you know, but I think a lot of people can understand what we're speaking to. I mean, there's a certain feeling you get that there's a lot of cliches that like these masterful teachers would say when I was growing up that sounded like sound bites, but they're more than sound bites. You know, it's like the, the idea of telling your story and telling a story and, and being a human being, and um, and being able to express, you know, emotions, but also being able to connect with other people and to resonate with people is really what the the ultimate goal of art is. But I, I guess it's it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, not everybody gets to be like, you know, a Van Gogh or a, um, a Jackson Pollock or, or a, you know, any other great artist. Um, but what makes all those artists who they are 99% of the time, especially the greatest ones, is their unique uh, voice and their unique perspective and um, how they actually tie it all together. And I guess, you know, a, one way to break it down for um, for someone who's not able to quite understand the, the philosophical stuff, the, their way is, you know, what's, what's beautiful about music is that it actually has the ability to kind of um, perfectly... Um, combine the right brain and the left brain and the <laughs> exactly. heart and yep. the soul and 
there's something when the right brain, the left brain, the heart and the soul are aligned and you can reach another human being from that place. If you're doing that, then you are you. Like there's no other way to access all that synergy. Like that synergy doesn't just exist completely abstractly or only with facility, you know? Um, and I guess, you know, you could say there are some, you know, with, it, with, the, with the visual world, a lot of people are pushing to the surface because they have maybe just one of those elements, but not all of them. And it's, um, you know, kind of pushing the algorithm, I guess, but. Well, no. That... And so I just want to be clear though. Like there were, I want, this is important because you're right. Some people, but it's fair to say is, can you give an example of when you tried to, walk away from the compass but yet the compass wouldn't allow it i feel like in some I ways mean, millions yeah millions. because you know because i think a lot of younger cats absolutely have a soul if they're deep into this kind of music but yet they're afraid to really see it and then they walk away from that and they go back to maybe something that's more codified or curriculum based or and you know that there's room for that but can you talk about a time that you walked away from the compass but yet you were jerked no. right back on the path. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that I'm not. That eventually, I will. A few specific examples I'd love to say, but I'm no, not. You're not going to divulge them on the Jay but, Feinberg show. It's fine. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I will okay. say that it's okay. I will say that uh, maybe I will in a year. Uh, <laughs> I will say I'll call you up and tell you I'm ready. To yeah, go. man. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, but um, I will say this, um, and I was getting to this before when I was about twenty or 25 I was practicing so hard you know and I wanted to be able to be the best I possibly could and play the best I could and I ended up getting tendonitis and there was like a six-month period there where I couldn't play at all and to be someone who had just come through you know college and is young and 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 excited about you know figuring out where they're at um to get that and it ended up being kind of a holistic thing. Like it was more than just that I was playing a lot. Like I was playing a lot and I was playing in situations I wasn't excited about. Like I remember finding myself like in restaurants in the corner where no one's listening, you know? To drag. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is exactly like what I want to do. Like I'm not necessarily enjoying this even, you know? Right. Uh, and my body actually like said no is what kind of happened because I was trying so hard. And this is an, an interesting thing, because in, in life, in general, it's a paradox. But what you learn when as you become a little more successful is that sometimes when you're trying to push really hard and control everything, it doesn't, it uses up a lot of energy, and you get less done than if you just relax into being your true self. And when you relax into really being your true self and really aligning with what your purpose is, this incredible amount of things can just start happening around you. Can you talk about this, talk about the specific things that start to percolate? Well, um, for you specifically for you, I mean, cause it sounds yeah. to me, I, I love what you said, but mm -hmm. that is so, uh, so much easier said than done. So many people want to control. But what starts to sort of, you know, sort of burn or appear once you lean in and just relax into yourself? I mean, you know, like, like, for example, 
I just did this recording with uh, John Medeski and Billy Martin, which is why we're kind of like what got us, what absolutely what connected us just most recently. And so, for example, like when I was in New York, I would go to a lot of their shows, and you know, I was like, I really wanted to play with them. I really resonated with what they were doing, and I felt like I could contribute. And this is like you know, twenty years ago, you know. <laughs> and I so I would be like, I'd be like, hey, how can I? you know do this you know and then i remember like even going as far as john gave me his um you know his manager's email once and i talked to her a bit and we were like close to kind of like setting something up where they would come and play at my actually play it play at the college with the budget i had kind of that is sick worked out. well yeah it was sick but it was like um at the end of the day like i remember john being like you know, hey, you, you should just find your own friend. You find your friends and just build your own thing. Like that's what we did. You're, you're, you know, you're sort, of, you're, you're, you should be able to do that. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, um, I'm still learning these lessons. Like, um, you know, or, shit. Like, uh, I was trying to start a band with Joe Russo and Marco Benevento before they had the duo. You know, hmm. um, and I was even playing with Marco, and we played like some Grateful Dead. And I was like, I have this idea. Let's play some Grateful Dead and build a fan base that way and then kind of do our own thing. And uh, But I was really pushing for it. Like, I, I think I was like pissed that one time, you know, he couldn't make a gig or something. You know what I mean? Like, this is just an example, you know, like you, 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 were, you were holding it. Yeah, you were holding on to it. You were trying to control it. I did. Well, I was yeah. like, I know I already knew, like I had this intuition with, with those guys in particular, too. It was like, hmm. I know that if I had these guys on my team, my dreams would come true right <laughs> so i'm like and this is like it. way before anybody there's nothing there was no really even buzz i mean well there was there was no just, there was no j-rad at all or anything like that no but yeah well i mean joe had fat mama which was like a you know yeah and I, my my dear friend eric deutsch was in that band yeah eric and then uh john t simon too um, and also and, and also uh jonathan goldberg a fantastic guitar player too yeah, so they're all kind of like amazing. But I, I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, like I tried really hard to make it work. And then I almost like tried so hard. I think it was like, I was like, well, we got these gigs and but I mean, you do rehearsals, you know what I mean? And, and it was like, well, we can't do the rehearsal. We can do the gig. You know what I mean? Like I wanted right away, like five days a week rehearsing and <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. No, I, I mean, I, I, I can relate. Um, So, so ultimately, well, yeah, so ahead. The, yeah the, the bottom line is that with, with, uh, you know, with John and and Billy, with John especially, like I would be somewhere like random, like New Orleans or you know, sh like Chicago or somewhere random, and they'd be playing over the last fifteen years, and I'd go see him, and afterwards be like, oh hey, what's up? Remember me? And when I was when I was a little kid, you know, it was sort of like ah, you know. <laughs> uh, you oh, know. I know though those guys <laughs> can be very irascible. Billy, yeah, go ahead, continue. No, they're cool. They're 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 beautiful. I know people. they're great. Yeah, they're cool. Okay, so um, so anyway. You know, then I'd be like, it'd be the conversation's like, well, what are you working on? And I'd be like, well, I'm working on this, check it out. And then, then, you know, people are listening to what you're doing. But, um, like, I didn't, th this session just came together like, like a snap. Like, it was just like, now's the time. This is happening. Boom. And it, and it was like at that time that I was relaxed and, you know, like breathing and like, um, mm. and just, just trying to trying to do some inner work actually you know in general but that's when i'm just saying that sometimes like even just the other thing is and i'll tell i'll say this on your show um 
you can have be the first person to hear this. Yes. Publicly. Yeah, go um, ahead. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, I'm working on how to say this, but two days ago, the be great, best thing that's ever happened in my life, one of the best things ever in my life to happen, happened. Wow. And um, I, you know, when I, um, the, the music industry is really tough and I never really had a lot of money growing up. Um, and I realized that in order to make a good push, you need some kind of support. And I'd always been able to make a living teaching lessons. So, you know, about 15 years ago, I opened up a music school with the idea that in 10 to 15 years, I wouldn't have to teach anymore. And I'd have like a budget for, you know, gas and hotels if I took a group on the road, you know what I mean? Sure. So that would be the, that, that was my, the, the best way I knew how to kind of like play the long game for someone that didn't have an instant um, boost. So anyway, um, we just bought the building and uh, I wouldn't be able to afford to buy a building, but um, the, the landlords were putting it up for sale and in, in, in all over the country, I don't know, especially here, but um, a lot of music venues and art centric things are getting closed down because rents are too high. And then people sell buildings and build high rises. You know what I mean? Uh, dude, it's, it's a, and it's a big problem. Yeah. Big problem. So um, one of my really, really close connections, someone who's a beautiful human being as are John and, and Billy. And, and I find a lot of these people are just really beautiful people, but um, this happens to be the guitar player in Pearl Jam. Hmm. And uh, he heard some music that I recorded a while ago and became a fan of it. Like it really liked it. And um, I, you know, I played a few songs on his um, solo project and him and another businesswoman um, who has a company called Classy Baby. Um, they came together and, you know, they were basically like, what's it going to take for you to keep the school here? And so they, they basically did, they basically backed it. Holy cow. Um, like, Whoa. essentially, I just, so basically, you know, yeah, sort of just bought a building with one of my heroes. I'm, I'm just, let's just get it on the table. Where is it? Where's the school? And talk, what's the name of the school? It's called the Music Factory. Where's it located? Seattle. Wow. That yeah. is, so of course, but so that the, the guitars from Pearl Jam's local cat. Yeah. Just, and was like, well, I mean, you know, that's, that to me is, I mean, that is, uh, so you must, you're, you're kind of flying high right now, huh? I mean, yeah, I'm not really sure how to even process <laughs> on that's a quantum awesome, level, you know, like the quant, it's a quantum thing. But like I said, I, I went through a lot of stuff in the last three years, especially and over the last 10 years, but last three years, and um, it really flipped my per my perspective about life around. And as I started to take less energy focusing on the things that weren't going the way I wanted them to, and just focusing on taking one step at a time. And that's why I'm like now releasing all this music, you know? Like if you look like four years ago, I, I might've released one, one song. You know what I mean? Last year I released like 11 songs, you know, I'm just doing these songs one at a time. And this year already in the second month, I've got an album 
and you know four songs queued up and then i have another 300 songs that are songs that i wrote composed recorded with great great players like with with john and billy there's another 10 songs or so um with the guys from trey's band there's another 15 songs um i got 10 songs from my rock band big high which was um, we had the drummer from screaming trees and mad season you know wow and I mean, uh going so i mean were you this floodgates that have opened up for you um it's i was just trying so hard to to fight the world because i i felt like it didn't see who i really was and the whole while i just realized i just it took it took time to realize that i just am who i really am <laughs> and that's even better than you know what i mean like i totally know what you're talking dude i i think it is i appreciate you being vulnerable to talk about it i think a lot of i think the scary part for a lot of younger cats is like well if i'm really going to be myself how am i going to sing for my supper you know like i have to conform in order to make some kind of dough whatever that means and so uh, they're constantly trying to manipulate force or do things that they really don't even like to do in order to survive and i so i think it's a fine line and part of it is like just sort of taking that insecure path obviously you know having the school and being able to you know sort of keep it going is essential but i also think it's really important for people to uh be themselves and that's well a yeah exactly like um if i could go back in time knowing what i know now i would have just hit the pavement a little bit harder and i would have had i would have given a little bit less of a fuck about what anyone else might be thinking or saying or um how things are landing or whatever um and i would have gone a little bit more down the bullseye but um to my own credit like i tried as, as best i could the whole time and i saw things along my path where i saw like a direct bullseye and then it, it didn't land as a bullseye and i got I, I let that derail me and if i could go back in time i would have just told myself to just keep going um, well, but you know all this stuff happens for a reason and then the point is yeah. you're you're clearly you have many chapters left to write, so you're blessed that you got the memo when you did, you know? Yeah, no, no, that's, you know, you're exactly right about that. And um, something is, I did get a, a big memo. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, when you, can you talk a little bit about, like, um, you know, you're somebody that has, like, a very broad palette of music, but I was just, I'm, I can't find the quote right now, but. I was talking to, I interviewed Danny Serafin from Chicago and yeah, he talked course. He talked about, <clears throat> I don't have the, I wish I had the quote, but he talked about integrating the feathering of the bass drum and using the ride cymbal in a rock setting, which was very unusual. Most rock drummers can't play jazz and vice versa. And I just, I kind of wanted you to talk about the kind of rhythm section, especially drummer that, that you like to have in terms of um, lending sort of jazz aesthetics into what might be considered yeah. rock music. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like both. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is like, I hear 
a lot of music. Well, I don't. I, I shouldn't. The music I go see live is not like this. But there's just like I remember talking. You know, talked to so many drummers, and they at, at a certain point, uh, the bass drums started to sound like machine gun fire, and that idea of like feathering going back to like the 80s kind of but the feathering yeah. kind of got lost and there were so many cats gregorico michael shreve david garibaldi these guys were all jazzers so they had mm. all learned how to feather and they brought those that sensitivity into latin rock or funk or sly stone and i just want you to talk about like you know to me how this might seem obvious to you but it's really important how do you get your rhythm section to move so that the music can move too much of the time I hear stuff and it just seems like it's stuck. Maybe somebody's mm -hmm. blowing really hard, but it, it it's really about the rhythm section. I, I, mean, wonder, I think yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, what you're talking to me about is, is making sure that everybody's ears are really wide open. Yes. And I think um, being able to kind of exist, like again, on the same frequency, like, um, it's it's one thing to like all be painting a, a certain shape in the same you know color um, that we happen to be in the same room and maybe on different pieces of paper and it looks like it all fits together and it's another thing to make one cohesive like actual you know joint statement together and in order to do that you got to have your ears open and as it turns out I think you even have to have your heart and your 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 soul and your mind Darn open right too. dude yeah man. Um, but you need to be able to like, I mean, you can kind of tell, I mean, even like uh, I was interestingly, as far as drums go with uh, Russ Lawton. Yeah. From Trey's band. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And he's an amazing guy. Um, obviously just all about the music, but he was talking about when we first started playing together, um, how sometimes he'll play with people he doesn't know, you know, and it might be like a sit-in or a jam and they just come in and it's full-fledged like they're like from zero to ten here i am it's right just, turn it up to ten and, does not and he's stop. playing and he's like okay that's how this is gonna go like he <laughs> he has like a switch in his mind like or something like okay this is gonna be one of those situations where it's gonna be like that whereas obviously you're talking about a guy who's able to play with one of the greatest living legendary musicians on the planet on a regular basis so you know he's used to having a lot of dynamics and wide ears but um you know i think you know there's got to be a groove and there's got to be a certain amount of it can go anywhere and you can play anything but you have to know what serves the music too so sometimes you have to serve the music by not playing too much but just because you're playing simple doesn't mean you're not like present with every um every moment and and feeling it you know and i think maybe there's people especially younger players people figuring it out and they're like this is my part i'm playing my part and that's all there is to it you know I, uh, what, could you talk about uh a band that you were in where you think looking back on it your ears grew the most on the bandstand grew the most um you know, because I think I think the idea there is like okay. you're the type of cat who's like you're playing with fucking monsters like Andy Hess and yeah. Kip, John Kimmock and Shreve. And, and these guys, to me, it's all about like 
you're just reacting to the sounds like the rudiment your your rudiments are already ingrained i mean it's similar yeah. to the to the cats who used to play bebop like sonny stitt and you know harold lamb these guys like the language is so embedded that they could just riff off the cuff that means yeah. your ears are wide open i mean it's I mean, maybe was there a time earlier in your career where i mean it was imperative that you had to open your ears more than you had ever done before well i mean as soon as i got to new york playing with all those guys, you know, playing with like Robert and EJ Strickland and Marcus Strickland and um, mm. like Rodriguez was out there. Um, but, you know, that's kind of like all we, we, that's really like for, there's like four years of my life that were just dedicated to literally that, you know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> these guys who are really, really great. You know, they have technical facility, but there were a lot of people at school who had, who could play faster, who could play just as good. You know what I mean? Sure. But, they were already at 19 to 23, like able, like fully aware of the fact that the masters were, you know, completely expressing themselves and, and forging their own, um, their own stuff. So, you know, yeah, you got, you kind of get, end up getting launched in the, you know, in the fire because we even had like ensembles where like the teacher would, would stop the band. I mean, hold on a second. Let me just backtrack. I got, go ahead, baby. Go ahead. I had a teacher who, in the, in the time, we fucking hated him. <laughs> but looking back, yeah, uh, his name was Maconda McIntyre. Wait, wait, was that Tim McIntyre? Maconda, I mean, he... he Dude, he uh, had, did he have, he opened the first, uh, he, he originally, he was an old school cat, right? I mean, he opened well, the... Well, yeah, he was like Eric Dolphrey kind of. Kind of player. Yeah, no, because like, he opened he opened a, a school in Old Westbury way back when. Uh, and that's yeah. I, I cannot believe that you studied with that cat. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know anybody, anything about a school, but uh, Maconda was like um, uh, really fucking deep, and uh, he was like best friends with Eric Dolphrey, and he was on the scene, and, and he was a guy that like Coltrane was considering. You know what I mean? It's like Coltrane had like his top three, you know. Oh, definitely. It could have been him or, and it was really free. And he showed us this fucking concept that's, let me see if I can turn this off. Yeah. He showed us this concept and the way he showed it to us, okay, we're going to have to let that ride out. Um, he showed us, so basically you got, you know, he showed up, I mean, this is my first year there. And um, he's like, nobody in this class can play anything more than one note. And so we're playing like bebop and your solo is just one note. And if you couldn't swing or tell a story that he was convinced by, then you could not advance to two notes. And there were people in that class that over the course of like four or five, six months just never got past one note. He was fucking brutal. <laughs> you know well, I, mean? I just, I want to, uh, this is a, uh... This is apps. So I want to read this. Do you, do you have you ever come across the the great? I mean, and I hope he's doing okay because man, he's been on this earth a long time. The great drummer percussionist Warren Smith. No. Okay, so Warren <laughs> Warren. I mean, we're going back to the Harry Parch, late thirties, early forties, and then obviously like Max Roach and M Boom. I don't know if you know that group. He was in that, but the mm -hmm. this he said Mackenda. Makenda Ken McIntyre was teaching at Wesleyan University in Connecticut 
There yeah. was a man who was an official at that school that became the new president of Old Westbury SUNY, a SUNY school. Oh, he, yeah, brought, sure. he brought McIntyre in to set up the music program. The president asked him what kind of program he wanted to set up. And Ken said, I want to set up a program in African-American studies. This was yes. almost non-existent at all universities. No, like, no, 100 yeah. percent. This guy was fucking heavy. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I know. So he was a he just was what, explain to me and the audience. What was the what was looking back on it, even though it was like pulling teeth? Why yeah. was he? What was the exercise there? What was the point he was trying to get across to people? I mean, I I uh, I hesitate to, to to give you the full. The I full know. Deal. What, what do you What do you What did you take away? No, no I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. tell you. But first of all, the basic exercise after a semester of being with him, or you know, whatever it was that we were in his class, was that what Merrick Dolphy was doing was basically taking Charlie Parker uh, melodies. Yes. And then placing any fucking note you want in there. And the thing <laughs> is that Charlie Parker's rhythmic concept was so deep. And the mute, the, the rhythmic component is so important that if you want to quote unquote, as he would say, like intellectualize, right. you know, what I mean? right. if you want to get intellectual with me about what scale or whatever, he's basically like, I'm rendering your, I'm rendering your ability to communicate expressively in my class like um to nothing to right. dust right because yeah. i don't care and he's like but he's like if you can play the exact rhythms that charlie was playing and play random notes and do it in a certain way and then and then he would be like that's what eric dolphy was doing that's what that's the language and so that was the that was sort of like the lesson of it um and it, let me tell you something it's not easy to do that it sounds like it's easy um no it's not it was, easy at all it's not no. easy at all the other thing is, because um, he was, he was, yeah, like you said, he, if you couldn't get this and you tried to like go around him, he would tell you that you were playing racist notes. Oh my, this is classic. Like this he is... was like fucking heavy. He was, he was, it was, it was like, there was like kids in the class that would like, I'm going to tell my parents that I don't want to be here or something like that. You know, yeah, he's he like, was, go ahead. Dude. He's like, go yeah, do he's it. like, whatever you want to fucking get smart <laughs> with me with your, with your, you know with your blah 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 bullshit you know <laughs> dude i'm this is so mind-blowing to me because that dude was uh i mean those cats were cut from a different cloth uh he also his album is like there's one on inner city i still can't really get my ear around it but these their ears these guys their ears were so huge i mean part bird is a perfect example where he just turned on the country western station and he learned the song in every key you know and it's just like to me I, it's just it's very refreshing to hear that you had this pedigree and i realize you don't want to divulge a couple of these heavy heavy stories i just wonder if you feel that whatever went down the last few years part of it's like like we talked about coleman hawkins shelly mann uh sunny stitt these guys were playing their life i mean they were playing their what the blues they were playing their life and I think some people don't necessarily have a great story to tell. And I wonder if you feel like through whatever adversity or ups and downs you've had recently, that even more of your story is now coming to the forefront in your music. Um, I think that the story is already there and it's, an, it's just built into the fabric of the universe. And it's so much bigger than anyone could ever, ever get to. And um, it's, it's just, a, a, it, I guess the cliche is, yeah, getting your, getting your ego out of the way a little bit. And, and, and also like not letting, there's a lot of things in this world that'll like kind of tear people apart, you know, like, um, 
there's a lot of things that people do and say that's not it's not helpful for creative people um but you know for me i feel like when i'm playing i'm telling the story of my my ancestors that you know also escaped persecution and um you know i'm, I'm not you know the story of you know, like my grandfather escaped the holocaust went to cape town then you know my my parents moved me out of cape town because they didn't want me to grow up in apartheid so i wow, feel like these great. are like things that like aren't you know like nelson mandela was like a part of the fabric of of who i am you know you know what i mean like i that that shit's like part of who i am and i there's no way to really convey that but i don't know how i to think say it. the reason though i think you said you've you've had this exceptionally in uh well i mean you come from a lineage of survivors i mean my family it's kind of hard to trace back i did have family that did escape the holocaust and things like that but um then having to go to a place like cape town and then being moved out because of the sort of the inequality and racism and bigotry and then moved you know i i, I oftentimes though it's just you know especially in the music that i love so much you know this melodic improvisation whatever the word jazz means to people um it's just to me uh i it really uh bothers me to the core uh that is as, at a societal level um that you know learning takes place within the four walls of the academy now and not on the bandstand because mm -hmm. you know cats are instead of telling their story like you said they're transcribing an elvin jones solo and that's never going to sound like elvin jones or they're reading the notes right off the page because they're afraid to sort of cut loose and actually say what, or try to maybe even start telling their story. Your story started when you were very young. Um, do you try to work with younger, like make a conscious effort to? I just spent 15 years of my life building an institution that all I did every day for seven days a week was work with kids for, for, for a decade. I have students now who are like in college that started with me when they were like, you know, 10 years old and um i taught them you know they, they played through they went to the jazz band that i was in and um and now i have you know 15 teachers that are doing it under the under the wing you know and like my dream is to be a spokesperson for music education but to do it in a way that's true to myself um i i, I got to a point where i'm teaching and i'm like what I need to do is bigger than this. Like the same thing that was telling me uh, that, uh, you know, I don't want to play this way um, because right. my hand's going to hurt if I do that. Um, a similar thing was happening to me when I was teaching, not in a, I don't want to say teaching's bad. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great way to make a living, but I'm like, I needed to do something bigger. Like, um, and the more I get into tune with that, the more, uh, and let go. Um, the more I believe um, that, you know, those doves can fly, I guess. <laughs> can you talk about how the music factory, mm -hmm. how, how, what is your sort of, how would you, how do you want to see this? I mean, the way the school has been running, how is it different than maybe a traditional cool. North Texas? I mean, that's a great, what, great question. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, my philosophy um, and who I am is that um, 
you got to meet each person where they are in life. And this is something I learned from my high school jazz band director, Scott Brown, as well. Um, you know, when, when I auditioned for the, the band, like I said, full circle when I was doing the football. <laughs> yeah, I love it, dude. Yeah, I want well, pictures of you in the you football. You, did you yeah, actually make it into, onto the field for a game or you just go right to the big band? Well, the funny thing is I, I, I started, I did all the stuff and then I got, I ended up getting in the jazz band and, and I was in football and we played like a couple games and halfway through the season, my freshman year, the coach is like, what's it going to be? Sports or music? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, all right, man, I'll see you later, brother. That's great. Yeah, that's pretty great. much. But, um, you know, I think that like um, music and, and music education and it's such a powerful thing. And there's so much that happens for kids and adults when they learn about um, using their right and left brain together and, um, you know, doing something that doesn't involve thinking in the in the normal way where like when you're playing, you're actually not thinking, you know, in, in words. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, there's a, what I realized is this is, this might sound a little, um, I don't, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but after teaching like, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, um, the amount of people that I teach, I taught at the time that were as serious about music as I was, was actually a lot lower than I ever thought it would be. Which actually kind of like helps reinforce the fact that I am meant to do something special. You know what I mean? I got to get my like, head around that. You're going to have to say, I'm going to have to listen back and try to figure What is that? Say that again. What does that mean? Um, what I mean is part of the thing that's the philosophy of the music factory is that right. you don't have to like be trying to be a professional musician. You don't have to be like, it's like, you know, not everybody has to go to the NBA to like basketball, you know? <laughs> It's like, I think that everybody should just do, there's things that kids get out of practicing and having a one-on-one -on -one coach every week for like the course of a year or five years of their life. That's not a family member. That's like a cool person. They're like, oh, that was a cool guy. You know what I mean? Totally. A cool, cool totally. girl. And, and you're coaching them and you're teaching them the skills to, you know, to work through things that are difficult for them. There's so much more than music that's happening. And um, I think that, um, it's so valuable and you know you and and that even though most people aren't so the music factory is a little bit more like let's just hang out once a week and to whatever capacity this is meaningful for you or works for you we're going to help you as teachers and then I want to make sure the teachers are paid well and um, it just kind of works but it's not like school of rock you know we're like the opposite Thank God. Um, no, I mean, I you know like what? Rock videos and they're like, you got to have this face and you got to look like this and you got to sound like these people. And we're more like, so do you have any pets? And they're like, yeah. Like, what's the, oh, a cat? What's the cat's name? Let's write a song about the cat. <laughs> well, I think, well, no, but I think with the genius part of it, to take it back to what we're talking about before, is that you're coaxing stories out of people. You're getting their, their own stories out of them, you know, and tell their own stories. What is, what's happening in their life? You know, what do you, what can you write a song about? Like, and just be yourself this idea of is there is there a way to talk about how you feel or sort of a crisis in my mind in terms of just like back when you could listen to jim hall kenny burrell uh you know the list of westmont you know everybody had their own individual sound and if you were really a head cat you could pick out that sound right away on a record same with drummers you know mickey roker max roach uh pete laroca all these guys had their individual sound 
at the college level, not the music factory, why do so many cats come out of the academy sounding like their professor? Hmm. Like their professor? Well, or because you know what's happening today? You could put on some modern jazz on the radio, and I don't know who it is because I just feel like there's this homogenization of sound. And I'm yeah. trying to pinpoint the idea of saying, well, in the past, you know, Hank Mobley was down on his luck and he had to borrow Don Menz's mouthpiece at Birdland and go. I mean, yeah. you know, like what I'm saying is, do you agree that there's a homogenization of sound at the at the at the level of at least like how how the music is being disseminated? And why do you if so, why do you think that is? I think it speaks to the actual miracle um, and the the profound. Um, uh, um, value and, and specialness of some of these incredible um, artists. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, one would think that everybody would be able to access what a lot of these people are accessing and be able to contribute. And one would think that, you know, um, the system would be able to reward people that are doing that. But um, unfortunately, um, it, it both speaks to how incredibly amazing it is, but you know, also the idea of just having an idea, like an original idea, is apparently a lot, a lot more rare than, than I think humans would like to let themselves believe. It's a very, very wise um, point. You know, yeah, I, I did. Very, very, like you know, the the people that are the innovators that are like you know, um, billionaires. You know what I mean? Like, what is it that they have in common? Like, they're basically like able to like take information and like make new ideas. You know. Um, and I think it's actually a lot harder for humans to, um, to break through or to sort of be, you know, either inherently just sort of, um, gifted with the ability to have something, um, on that level to say in the moment. And, um, so there's two sides to the coin, right? One is, um, it shows you how incredibly rare it is and special. Um, and then it also shows you that we're living in a system um that doesn't really reward um i don't know what the word is ingenuity or you know just um, uh, originality or originality. yeah i mean like we're also living in a system that you know a lot of the things that people make money off of make people sick you know like Absolutely. the kinds of foods that people are selling and the fact that fossil fuels are you know just like taking it out of the earth i mean those are like the trillion dollar companies the war machines the the politics like a, a lot of it's like you know, doing it off somebody else's back, you know? And so for someone who to, to, to dedicate their life to the art and to actually um, expressing it in that unique way is just something that's so much more valuable, I think, than even, you know, 99.9% .9 of the population can wrap their head around. I just... Um talking to Ari Joshua here on the Jake Feinberg show. And, uh, you know, uh, about five or six years into my program, I, uh, uh, Lenny White connected me with, uh, with Michael Shreve and, and I didn't, uh, you know, I was not a huge Santana fan still to this day. I'm not. Um, but <laughs> I recognized that Michael, um, was like, you know, coming from a very special place musically and we did our first interview and that led to an additional four more interviews. And then ultimately, hmm. uh, and when there was, uh, the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, uh, him and, uh, this guy, beautiful doc dentist in, in, in San Francisco, Dr. Rock, he, uh, put together, um, 
sort of a celebration at the uh, the Brava Theater. And so there was some Santana cover bands, and there was also uh, a roundtable round table discussion. And, and Michael and Gregorico both said, we want Jake Feinberg to moderate that. And I'll send you the video later. It's just the man uh, to this day, we don't talk all the time, but he has just been a, a, what you said before, a compass, a beacon of truth, a guy who you want to talk about forcing the issue, who spent, obviously he was captured at 19 and he became an international star, right? With the yeah. drum solo. But mm-hmm. then for so many years, he was, you know, automatic man or all the different music he was making. He kept trying to say, hey, guys, because you know, people kept coming up to him and saying, oh, man, you're the guy who did that drum solo. And he'd be like, hey take a left turn. Why don't you dig this? Why don't you dig what I just did here? How about digging? It was driving him nuts because he was trying to control it. And at a certain point, and I'm talking decades, he just said, shut up, be grateful that some people recognize that I had an impact in Mm. some portion and let them get off on what they get off on. And that's, that's what it is. But I just, to me, the guy just got the memo of being a human being. And I just would love you to talk about your musical relationship with him and, and, and how you got a chance to connect with him originally. Yeah. Um, yeah. First of all, he's Michael is like really like just, I don't even know top one, just one of the top of the list human beings uh, and especially someone who really understands the music and the gravity of like, like I said, maybe the majority of the population doesn't quite have the ability to wrap their head around what what's actually going on you know um but you know to backtrack people are able to and every once in a while um someone brilliant gets launched to the spotlight and and it's beautiful um santana is a great example and a lot of music from that time period and what a time to be alive you know oh it's amazing like I, i i a lot of times when i was able to sit with michael would ask him questions about what it was like to be you know, there at that time to be riding that wave because they were really riding that wave. Um, and yeah, he's just someone who really gets it. I mean, he was he was there. He was part of history and always will be. And he has a really um, just sincere, um, just really sincere, like honest and genuine, like presence about him. And, you know, I know like, yeah. So, I mean, how did it come to be? He, when I, when I came back here after New York, um, uh, I didn't mean to move back here, but, um, it just sort of happened. The compass. Uh, yeah. I, I actually, sometimes I look back and <laughs> wish I had stayed in New York for longer, but, um, maybe I'll go back there. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, he, he had a, a once a week gig. Um, and there was a drummer actually um, named Kevin Saka, hmm. um, KJ Saka, which I think anyone who's listening should just like write that name down and check him out. I've got um, a couple recordings of him with my group called Ari Saka Doria, which is like an organ trio. Like Joe Doria, uh, my hero, dude. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable, so, man. That's yeah, badass. My, yeah, he's the best. Yeah, he is. Um, so it's an organ trio with, and, and Kevin plays like live drum and bass drums, but. He was like on the beginning of that wave. He wasn't like Jojo Mayer early on the wave, but mm-hmm. um, there are people all over the planet that are influenced by Kevin. And Kevin was really 
really recognized as, as kind of like a genius. And I remember, and I was playing a lot with Kevin and Michael loved Kevin. So like Michael would like pull me aside and be like, like, I don't think you realize like what, what we're dealing with here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, we were all like 20, 20, 25, 27 years old. And, um, and so Michael actually had Kevin living in the house next door to him. At the time, Michael had three houses. One was a recording studio. One was his family. And then he had a rental house right next to each other. At that, that is time. great. That is freaking great, dude. Yeah. At that time. <laughs> that was a while ago. But um, uh, uh, it was in an area called Tangletown. So he had like, it was called like Tangletown Studio. And actually, so what happened was Michael heard that trio and, and he came up to me and he's like, this is the trio that I want to record. He's like, this is, this is the album I want to make right now. Like he was, and I was so honored. Um, wow. And flattered. And within, you know, a, a couple of weeks we were over at a studio and, you know, I kind of like, I write a lot of music. I don't, I don't even like record like, like, you know, 2% of the stuff that I, I write down. So I had these, these books and I didn't know what we were going to do. So I took the recording of the show and we basically like, it was an improv show, but he thought, I think everyone there thought we were playing songs and I transcribed the melodies and the chords that we were playing. And then that became the album. And, um, what's and the name of that album? It's called chapter one, Ari Sakadoria. It's pretty, it's pretty dope. It's pretty cool. That's actually that the album. So cool. Man. That's actually the album that stone heard and, 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 and initially many years ago. <clears throat> and um uh i have to really uh thank michael because you know when you're when i was at least in my 20s i had no idea how to make an album i i thought an album was something that was so expensive i wouldn't be able to do um i, I would get people together and then they would be so serious about it that they would want to wait months before we could do it and i tend to be like in the moment Totally, dude. Stop and, with and the, so, yeah. Stop the micromanaging. Go burn, you know. But to have Michael be like, "We're making this record." I mean, it wasn't like another five years before I made another recording. Like, uh, it was a big deal, and it was a really wonderful thing that he did to do that in that moment because there was something that he, you know, he, he, and then, again, he's the kind of person that's able to recognize, boom, like a snap. You know, that's right. That's what I was that's trying to say. He, he sees that. He also is just a fanatic and he likes, he doesn't, he openly admits, he's like, I don't get hired a lot. He's like, I'm a unique offbeat guy. The guy was playing. I can't wait to send you my interviews with him because I mean, we're talking going back to Palo Alto where his dad, I mean, he was sneaking in through the ceiling to see a train in Elvin, you know, and then he'd sit outside the jazz workshop while his dad went in. He was too young to get in. Um, yeah. But just, you know, I, I, I love that. Um, can you, you know, can you talk? I think it's just really important where you're at in your career at this point, in this present time, how you've evolved as a leader and what you think the strongest qualities of leadership are on the bandstand. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, just, just to finish off, uh, Michael had a, a, a weekly gig and the guitar player left for an extended period of time. And I, I got to play in the band as a, for the weekly gig. And that's when I really formed a connection with him also. Um, and I just really loved it because I got to kind of, in a way, step into the, 
not like Santana role, but, you know, but <laughs> no, but I, dig, someone, I dig, I dig. But also, like he was like Santana was all about Gabor Zabo, you know. And like most Santana fans probably don't even realize it, but like a lot of Santana stuff comes from this gypsy guitar player Gabor Zabo. So we were playing a lot of that kind of stuff, and I got to really soak it up. And um, and, and Michael's just a legend; he's a living legend. But um, as well, far as I want to just be clear, you were were you playing like the Impulse Gabor Zabo kind of stuff? Like the, the basically, the if Michael has a band called had a band called Spellbinder, and Spellbinder, I think, was a well, you're absolutely right, oh, totally 100%. Yeah, yeah that's strong. right. And so, like, but wow. you know, Michael chose the material, and it was different material every week. We did everything from like Radiohead to like Santana to you know, um, originals. You know, um, he, he always picked really gorgeous material, uh, but yeah, like the stories, so many stories from him about so many things. But as far as the band later thing um yeah you know i think um i have like this really one of my skills is i can kind of like freeze frame and like look up the mountain and i can see the whole mountain you know what i mean wow this is deep, um, this is really good this is beautiful but the problem is like other people around you like can never really ever see the mountain the same they might see you seeing the mountain they might see their own mountain um but it's it's not like something you can really um you have to be careful because like i said i think i always saw this mountain and when i find people that are going to be in a band with me um i really struggled because i like i would be like either I would be all out, like, here's the mountain, let's go up the mountain, the mountain's going to be easy to go up, we're going to do it, it's happening, you know, but there's so many pieces to that, you know, like, do people want a tour? A lot of people don't, like, do they need to get paid? Um, do they have bills? Do they have a family? Um, or do they have, like, their own mountain that they want to go up that's more important? And there's all this stuff to, like, having a band, which kind of, like, ends up making, like, when you see people like Pearl Jam or Fish um, or The Dead, like, or anyone like last for so long, and you wonder also kind of like why, why other people can't do it, but it's fucking hard. <laughs> well, let me you ask know? you a question. Okay, so that's a very interesting, I mean, again, it's a, it's a different time. I mean, even the bands that you talked about, Nirvana. Yeah, uh, right. It would know, be Fish, easier back then. There was It was easier. Time. And so, but my point is, isn't it someone, I mean, ultimately, uh, it takes a really strong leader with a huge vision to pull those people along who otherwise maybe can't see it. But over time, they eventually get on board. I mean, I'll never forget interviewing. This may not be the best example, but, um, you know, just when the dead took a, a hiatus in 75, all of them kind of thought that they could go off and try their own solo careers and turned out that after the end of the year, you know, it was no problem for Garcia, but by the end of the year, Billy Kreutzman couldn't even afford a condo. So they, mm -hmm. I mean, they had to go back together. And I well, just wonder, like, I mean, part of it's like, maybe it, it's always been really difficult, but it's just somebody who can see the whole mountain and not worry that other people can't see it. But actually, if they're, if they're really that vital to the one living organism, then you drag mm -hmm. them along until they actually get it. I mean, I would, I would, I would hope that that would 
that I, I think I hoped many times it would be that simple, but I think you actually have to identify what you're going for. And in some cases as a band leader, you know, all you need is something that's coming up in a short while and you can take care of everybody's needs and get everybody on board for that trek up that maybe more like a hill, you know, and you can get a lot done. But um, I think if you're going to go, you also have to, I mean, it just shows you how much humility and um, like uh, how much, not just how you play has to do with, I mean, it's really about being a, a good person in, in a lot of ways are really about like um and people and um but you just got to know what are your goals and you know try to focus on smaller chunks you know because um uh and, and and listen to what the people if you want it to be a cl- cl- collaborative thing you really need to listen to what other people are saying and what their needs are um absolutely and- you know it's just this I love where your head's at, man. I mean, no matter what, like the guys that I'm gravitating to now in, in terms of the live road dog scene, um, I just feel like they are the most beautiful people. I tend to like the, I mean, I love the music. Don't get me wrong, but I really get off more on the musicians more than the people themselves. You know, we're going to, I want to definitely do set two with you. This has been a mind-blowing uh, burn here. I just have one final question in this section. Jake Feinberg, and I want you to talk as honestly as you can about this because obviously you have the music school, which is going <clears> to <throat> – you devote a lot of time to that. But, for instance, uh, this recent album with uh, with Billy and John or before with, with Kim Ock and Hess, you know, you go back in the day – uh, you know, <clears throat> Joe Henderson cuts an album. He's going on the Chitlin circuit or he's going on tour with that band. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, the section, all the cat, all my dear friends, like Russ Kunkel, Lee Sklar, Danny Gorgemar, they're going on tour with Carol, Carol, uh, King or James Taylor. How in my mind's eye, as exciting as this album is and how it's, going to be searingly great spiritual music is it realistic to say that there's a possibility to do a tour with the people that are on this album to me that is a major problem where you can have these all-star lineups and yet the music never really get, gets a chance to breathe on the bandstand but maybe you tell me i mean is there going to be a chance for you to tour with the cats that were on this most recent album yeah i'll use all of my available manifestation powers to will that will that into being um and um you know i think anything's possible um i think uh, you know we'll have to see like how how well it's received so far we're we're getting like you know i'm not even used to really getting asked to do interviews so this is great when i'm doing an interview um and we're getting a lot of good response from this round of of music and i've got a ton more music and I'm not going to stop. And I feel like I've built the base of my pyramid with the, um, with all the work I put into playing and studying and, and trying to be a good person and, you know, conquering my demons and, um, and building something for the community that gives back. And I think I've done um, a lot of really great work on the bottom of that pyramid and, you know, releasing more music and touring is sort of like the top piece in a way. And, so, 
you know, I really, yeah, I really hope we can do it. I'll, I'll certainly ask, ask them. Um, but, you know, I also have a lot of patience now and um, th things like I'm really trusting in the universe a little bit more. So uh, if the universe wants it to happen, um, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> well, I just want to say, man, just from talking to you and just being the vessel that I am for as a conduit, I know you're just getting kind of hip to who I am, but the bottom line is that the work and, and the creations that you're making now um, are going to live on long after you've left this planet. So mm. my, my feeling is like, yeah, you know, maybe you'll have a regional run with the guys. If maybe it won't happen. It doesn't matter. I've realized that the archives I'm building the fifth book that's about to come out. I'll send you my, I think actually some of, I don't know if you have a library at the school, but I think you should, you will dig my books that I've done based on my interviews. And I just mm -hmm. feel like I've recognized that it's not, this is, if I inspire people in this lifetime, which I have, that's really cool. But my hope is that this stuff will live on long after I'm gone. And I can feel that from the lineage of your family and the spiritual side of it and where you're at in your life right now, how you're cultivating that. Mm -hmm. It's going to go on long after you've you, you've gone. So, you know, you got that going for you as well. But I'm just saying, stay the course, always keep your heart open and never forget to uh, to just keep passing. Always share the information. You know, that was what I loved so much about. I never met any of these guys, but so many of the of the of the elders that we love. I mean, they weren't territorial about their spirit or their knowledge. Uh, they They didn't hoard it. And we live in the society now where, you know, people own six houses and, you know, three of them they never even go to and they're full. You know, it's just there's so much greed, excess. And yet there's this whole other part of our society that's just in squalor. So the music and the musicians have the ability to sort of unite humanity uh, in an unquantifiable way. And you are part of that. And it was really an honor to uh, to hang with you, man. Oh yeah, no, no. Likewise, it's been great. I really enjoyed the 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 opportunity to talk. And uh, if you if you, if we can do a set too, absolutely, uh, dude. I'll no, be, I mean, I'll, this I'll is this. I mean, you you're, <laughs> this was this was we just blew through. Like, I don't know, that went really, really just by quickly. So yeah, I mean, and and I, I my hope is to get up to the Pacific Northwest sooner than later. I live in Tucson, but we're definitely going to catch a hang too, man. I love where you're coming from, and I really love where your attitude and where your heart is at right now. So mm. stay the course brother. And, uh, and we'll be in touch. It was really, it was a great way to cap the week off. Yeah. All right. All right, baby. Talk to All you right. soon, brother. Okay. Peace. Later. Later. Bye. <laughs>